Hi, Richard. Hello, Noor. How are you? Just great. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Always. And I was actually just thinking that it's going to be such a challenge to keep this call under 30 minutes or about because every time we talk, we usually end up spending, I don't know, a couple of hours going down rabbit holes. Well, that's up to you. I think your 30-minute format is great, but I'll take what I can get. Well, in any case, it's always incredibly informative speaking with you. You first came onto my radar a while ago, actually, and I wanted to let the audience know how, because I think it's quite a fascinating story. I remember distinctively many years ago watching that special from Glenn Beck entitled The Puppet Master, and um, it had caught, you know, tremendous waves uh, because it was a proper expose, I think, for the first time on television in this manner that George Soros was exposed. And not a lot of people know that special was based on your and David Horowitz's book, The Shadow Party. It was very much based on our book. I appeared uh, on the first segment, and I think they stuck me in maybe some other places too. There were three segments totally. But as you say, it was a historic show. It, it was a, a huge turning point in public knowledge, pub, public understanding of the threat that George Soros posed to our democracy. And it was a threat that was directed expressly at our electoral system, a, a threat which we now finally understand completely in the present day, but which in the past people really didn't get it. And yeah. if I accomplished anything in all the years that I was doing this thankless task of writing about George Soros, and I say if, because sometimes I do wonder if it was worth it, no, I'm just kidding. Yes, but, thank uh, you. <laughs> I was going to say, absolutely, it was. Just kidding. But if I accomplished anything, I think it was to bring to people's attention the fact that George Soros works specifically in this area of regime change. He works in economic warfare and regime change operations, which are now commonly called color revolutions. When I wrote my first well, I have to say my first negative article about Soros. I, I must confess, the first thing I wrote about Soros back in 1993 was actually positive. I wrote about him in a book called How to Profit from the Coming Russian Boom. And I had been doing a, a lot of reportage in Russia it, back in the early 90s. I was an editor at Success Magazine at the time. So they sent me over a number of times to report on all of the amazing things that were happening in Russia, just amazing for us, for people of our time, our generation, to see the Soviet Union collapsing. And what we thought was happening was that Russia was going to become a, a normal Western country, and sort of become part of the, the club of what we used to think of as the free world back in the Cold War years. And this was tremendously exciting. It, it felt like victory. Uh, I guess if Darren Beatty would, were here, he would be kind of rolling his eyes at the idea of the freedoms of the West, and, and he's, he's quite right. Well, I think because, we've, uh, we've all realized, especially in the last 18 months, that the notion of the free world is very much an illusion. Let me say this. I can never be as cynical about the Cold War verities as our friend Darren 
and maybe that's partly because I'm a boomer, you know, as, as, as you guys are always poking fun at us. I don't poke fun at boomers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. But um, I, I do remember, I have to say, I went to the Soviet Union as a student in 1978, and coming back from Leningrad to Paris, from that second world, as they called it, that second world communist environment to the first world of Paris with all those lovely sidewalk cafes, all the food, so much food. We had come to appreciate food. Let me say, it's very good what Darren is doing to instruct people. It's time to break out of those Cold War illusions. But I'm here as a, an older person, a voice from the past, saying it wasn't all lies. Any kind of mind control, any kind of cultic indoctrination, you can't get someone to join a cult by offering them nothing. There has to be something good that you're offering. And it was true during those Cold War years that there was something wonderful and free in the Western world that was not present in the communist world. And it was very clear, it was tangible. The point that I wanted to make is that as this takeover of the free world has accelerated the past few decades, and especially the past few years with this last 18 months completely cracking down on the removal of our freedoms, you, you come to realize that there's a lot of posturing involved in this pretense that our world over here is free today. Yes, and, and certainly... Our freedoms are being taken away at an absolutely dizzying and catastrophic rate, uh, and soon they will be gone, unless there is a very hard pushback. Mm -hmm. But to return to your question, so, so in my book, How to Profit from the Coming Russian Boom, at which time I was totally indoctrinated in the Cold War doctrine, and I believe we're winning, and I believe George Soros was helping us win helping to overthrow communism and helping to teach the Russians how to run a free market economy. And I wrote very positively about Mr. Soros in my book. Years later, I got a call from Chris Ruddy at Newsmax. This was in 2004. And I had been one of the earliest uh, columnists at, at Newsmax. I think they started it in 1998. And I started writing in 99, I think. And for some reason, Chris called me. I, I don't know why he thought of me in particular for a Soros article, but he, he said, we want to do a big expose of Soros. We want to put it on the cover. Again, at that point, I'd never written one negative word about Soros, but I was aware that at that time in 2004, Soros had come out very publicly against President Bush, saying that he was going to do, quote-unquote, a regime change. He was using very inflammatory language, and he was saying expressly that what he had done in other countries, and what he meant is these other countries where he had done color revolutions, as they're now called, he said what he had done there he was now going to do here in the United States. And that really got my attention because... With all my experience in Russia, I knew exactly what he meant. Most Americans didn't. What he meant is that he was going to use subversive tactics 
of infiltration, artificial street protests, and other sorts of interventions in the electoral process outside of the normal constitutional system. And so that's the story that I wrote for Newsmax. It was called George Soros's Coup. That came out in May of 2004, and that was really the first expose that I know of in the English language where I really clearly warned of what sort of business Soros is involved in, that when he speaks of regime change, he has indeed done this in many countries. He's talking about going beyond what we then considered normal in the United States. And I was immediately put on the O'Reilly factor, and immediately I was attacked by a new group called Media Matters for America. I think they had three or four different articles just about me, and David Brock had written an open letter to Bill O'Reilly, and he cc'd it to Roger Ailes, demanding equal time to go on the O'Reilly factor to rebut all the terrible things that I had supposedly said. It was very striking to, to see that kind of reaction, the kind of personal defensiveness that they showed uh, towards George Soros in particular. They were so personally protective of of him. And and of course, Soros was, he he was actually one of their founders. There was all this nonsense for years of saying, oh, Soros put money into media matters. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. It's this game they play in the media to to play out the airtime. It was a total non-issue. Everybody knew Soros had invested money. He was the primary founder of the Center for American Progress, and it was out of this uh, Center for American Progress that Media Matters had grown. And so all this game they played with shell corporations and and passing money mysteriously through different kinds of foundations and then saying, oh, that's not my money, that's that's somebody else's money. Whose money could it be? It, it's just a, a silly game. It's a distraction from the important issues and their masters exactly. at that. Exactly, exactly. But even worse than being a distraction, it's stupid. And, and here I, again, I have to say I love this about Darren, how he's always attacking people for their stupidity when it's appropriate. There is nothing worse, nor than stupidity. Nothing worse. You, you know, I, I could tolerate anything. The most terrible political cataclysms, even if it meant being sent off to the gulag or being guillotined, if only all these things were done by intelligent and well-spoken people so that we could all say noble things as we're being guillotined and even our enemies would appreciate the nobility of our oratory, just like in the movies. If we could just all be well-spoken, intelligent people while we're in the business of slaughtering each other, it would make everything so much better. But the most oh, Richard. <laughs> it's true. Well, the discourse and how downhill it's gone over the past couple of decades mirrors the plot to dumb down the entire country. Yes, absolutely. I think what would be um, incredibly valuable for the audience to know is that clearly you were the first to expose all of this. Following 2004, you know, then you had the Shadow Party book and then the Glenn Beck special, 
and a few years where you were kind of offline and you started writing again recently for Lou Rockwell's website. And there are four fascinating pieces that you published in the last couple of months entitled How the British Invented Globalism, How the British Sold Globalism to America, How the British Invented Color Revolutions, and your latest piece, How the British Invented George Soros, where you pose the question whether George Soros is in fact a puppet master or if he is a psyop. Your journey is a fascinating one, and I mean, we could talk about it for so long, but I really encourage listeners to go and find those pieces and, and read them. But if you can tell us a little bit about what you're trying to convey. Okay, to, to summarize, you mentioned the shadow party. After the Newsmax story, I went back to David Horowitz. I had previously been the editor of David's front page website. And uh, I left there because I, I wrote a book called Hillary's Secret War. But I went back to David because he was very interested in pursuing this research about Soros, and Chris was not. And, and I do want to say something about this if we have the time, mm-hmm. just because it relates to a lot of things, including my latest article about how the British invented George Soros. In that article, I revealed the fact that a man named Lord William Rees Mogg who happens to be the father of Jacob Rees-Mogg. He was a journalist. He was the editor of the Times of London for 14 years. He actually became the chairman of Newsmax Media from 2000 to 2006, something like that. Now, as I explained in my recent article, he was actually the man, I call him the man who created George Soros. And in many ways he was... But what happened was when Chris first called me, now Chris was really hot to get an expose out about Soros. And I think to some extent he was being egged on by this guy, Nick Simonek. Now, Nick was a Hollywood producer, actually, and he was a very upper crusty sort of English gentleman. And he really disliked Soros. As I understood it, he was Soros's neighbor in Long Island. Nick just hated him. And I I don't think it was even anything political. Nick was a a Hollywood guy, and who knows what his politics even were. But anyway, so Chris and this guy Nick really wanted to expose Soros, and we did. But basically, it turned out they were doing this behind Reese Mark's back. And after the article was out, and after I'd been on the O'Reilly Factory, we had this big meeting in New York at a, a, a restaurant. And there were all the top Newsmax executives there, and Reese Mogg showed up. So Chris and Nick tried to lobby him. They were basically trying to sell him on the idea that we, you know, Soros has become a problem, he's become a threat, we really need to keep going after him. Chris lost that argument. And I, I remember Reese Mogg was at the head of the table, Chris was on one side, Nick was on the other, and they were both trying to make him understand this. But ultimately, Reese Mogg put the kibosh on it, and Chris was very honest with me. He said, I'm sorry, we, we can't do this anymore because Reese Mogg has said no, and I got it. Yes, I, and your article, the latest one I mentioned, how the British invented George Soros, once you read that, you understand why the meeting turned out this way. Yes, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. From there, I went back to uh, my old job uh, with David Horowitz. 
So what I did with David, I was looking at the whole infrastructure of orchestrated revolution, the means by which the establishment, let's call it, orchestrates street actions and other kinds of revolutionary activity. And the term we used in the shadow party was pressure from above and below. That's an old term that was used a lot in the 60s. Pressure from above and below is when you have both the government and the street protesters cooperating with each other. A good example of that today would be defund the police. Now, nobody in their right mind wants to defund the police, and yet we have this pressure from below, from all these these artificially created groups saying, defund the police. Then we have these fake politicians putting pressure from above saying, oh my goodness, the people have spoken. They want to defund the police, so let's defund them. And yeah, they're bailing fake. out all the rioters through their different organizations, raising funds. Kamala Harris calling right. to raise funds. Right, and... and this is called pressure from above and below. Mm -hmm. And that's what we wrote about in the shadow party. We told the story of Soros, his whole life story, how he got involved in all these things, and then looked very, very particularly at these actual movements and mechanisms that had been created deliberately, not by quote unquote communists or spy masters in Moscow or anything like that, but by our own people, our own wealthy people, our own elites yes. here in the United States, creating these these movements, such as the, the uh, Cloward-Piven movement, the crisis strategy, overload the system. They actually overloaded the welfare system in New York back in the 60s and early 70s by deliberately getting so many people to sign up for welfare that it bankrupted the system. And then they announced that is this married couple, Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven, then they announced that having tanked the welfare system and, and actually having driven New York State into bankruptcy, that their next target was going to be the U.S. electoral system. And they laid out, once again, very publicly in the pages of the nation, a whole plan whereby they were going to put an intolerable pressure on the voting infrastructure of the United States causing a complete collapse, which we have now seen. And this is what people don't realize, how many people are involved in this plot. And we know it because we're following it, you even more closely and for much longer than, than most. But they even told us, they admitted it in that Time magazine expose. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg pumping uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, all of George Soros's activities that span decades to place people in the government, as you said, pressure from above. All of this culminating in the utter sham that were the November 3rd presidential elections. Yes, exactly. So the things that are happening now, such as you describe, are all the things that we predicted in the shadow party, me and David Horowitz. Now, the mood was changing in the so-called conservative movement. This fear that we have now where people say Soros is Voldemort, no one dares say his name, that began shortly after the shadow party came out. Before our book was published, it was leaked to Media Matters. 
prior to publication by the very publicist who had been hired by our publisher, and I'm not going to name names, but it was leaked to Media Matters, and they came out with a big six or 7,000 word hatchet job prior to publication. Now, it got on the New York Times bestseller list anyway, but I think it would have done a whole lot better if there hadn't been this huge hatchet job come out days in advance and that wasn't done by the enemy that was done by our own people and this is the biggest problem that we face to this day with the, the so-called patriot movement or conservative movement is the extent to which we have been fully penetrated by a hostile regime without going into details it became the best thing for me to do to move on from the horowitz center I wanted to continue pursuing my Soros research, but it became more and more difficult. I saw everywhere I looked, doors shutting in my face and people becoming scared. By that time, the Voldemort effect was already starting to set in. There had been a brief time when you could criticize Soros, and now all of a sudden you couldn't. And everybody felt that. And I felt it too. I want to say this very clearly. There were a number of years when I stopped writing about Soros. I stopped writing about politics at all. So any person that I name here and say, well, they back down from their Soros coverage, I did exactly the same thing. I just took a little longer. So I don't say this to be critical to anyone. It was simply the reality of the situation. And I succumbed to it too, ultimately. In fact, in 2010, when I got a call from the Glenn Beck show, this was for what became the Puppet Master series, I didn't want to go on. My, my wife, Marie, told me, you've got to do it. You have to. I didn't want to go. And part of the reason was they wanted me to talk about that Soros was anti-Semitic. Uh, they wanted to say Soros was anti-Israel and he was anti-Semitic. And I, there, there was just no way I was going to go on television and say such a thing, not only because I knew how it would be received, but just because it would be hypocritical. Because my own father, who, who was Jewish, had really quite similar views to Soros, being very kind of skeptical about Jewish tribalism, if, if we could use that word. My, my father had the same view. And in fact, while at least a couple of Soros' wives had been Jewish, my father married my mother, who's half Mexican and half Korean. And, uh, you know, much to the horror of his parents, not only was she not Jewish, but she was, you know, of a different race. And I, I just couldn't have the temerity to say that George Soros isn't Jewish enough. It would be ridiculous. Anyway, that was one of many reasons. Oh, so it was but, besides the point, or perhaps a distraction in and of itself to what it is you really wanted to say about yes, George yes, Soros. Yes, it was a distraction, and it just it, it wasn't something I wanted to say from my heart. But for all that, it was a, it was one of the, the proudest moments of my life. It was one of the finest moments, it, a moment when. I was really very disconsolate and feeling, well, where am I going to go? What am I going to do now? Glenn Beck just descended as if from heaven. He, he gave me a chance to re-deliver that message from the shadow party. And, and actually, he, he promoted the hell out of the book. He was so good. 
I will always be grateful to it. And and the sales just took off with the Shatter Party. It just went through the roof. It was a really seminal moment. You know, I mean, I was very young when the, the, the series came out, but revisiting it, you know, also a, a couple of years later. But you just look back and you see that this was one of the wake-up moments for a lot of people to understand and begin to have this consciousness of how the country was being subverted. It was definitely one of the biggest seeds of the last 20 years that helped wake up people. Yes, it was, and, and Glenn was punished for it. He, he lost his show because of that, at least largely because of it. After Glenn left Fox, a couple of Fox executives came out with books saying Glenn left because of his attitude or his personality or entrepreneurial activities or this or that. They actually came out with two entire books to try to say that Glenn wasn't kicked out of Fox News because of the Puppet Master series. But, yes. but Glenn himself admitted it. Glenn, Glenn had me on his new show sometime later, and he admitted it. He, he said, I paid a very high price for going after Soros. So that's the important thing, is that when you go after Soros, when you really go after him, that is to say, not just say, oh, Soros is giving money to bad causes, Soros is doing this, Soros is doing that. That's not a threat to anyone. What threatens them is when you start looking at who they really are, that is, Soros and the whole crowd that he runs with, because he's part of a much larger network, which is what I'm really writing about now. This is and what's really interesting with your latest pieces, is that you really go into the whole architecture behind who Soros is and the question that you pose, you know, puppet master or psyop. Yes. Now... This, uh, again, I'm going to evoke Darren Beatty. I really have to introduce, <laughs> I really need to introduce you to each other. But, but of course, as the whole world knows, uh, during this last election season, Darren came out with the first mention of color revolutions since Glenn Beck. Mm -hmm. And Darren really went right to the, the most important point, which is that it's not Soros, the big bad boogeyman, who's really doing these color revolutions, but it's actually the government itself, our government. And and Darren very bravely yes. exposed uh, and named names of individuals and organizations within the national security apparatus of our country, which are tasked with overthrowing foreign governments through color revolutions and other means. So that was a, a huge moment in in this whole timeline of exposing Soros and his color revolutions. And it was tremendously empowering and inspiring to me and, and was, uh, I'd say, a big contributing fact to my deciding to finally go on to the next the next phase of, of what needs to be said about Soros, because the fact is, yes, it's true that Soros works with the CIA and he works with the U.S. national security community. He does all that, but is that the end of the story? What I'm looking at is the British origin of color revolutions. The British have been doing this for centuries, but especially since the early 20th century, they've been focusing scientifically with the use of modern psychology on how to do bloodless coups. What I'm trying to show people now 
is the extent to which the whole globalist infrastructure, all of these globalist institutions were not only created by the British, but they were planned in great detail by the British. Going back to the Victorian era, the, the entire project of globalism was something that British uh, visionaries, let's call them, foresaw at least as far back as the 19th century. You could go back to the Elizabethan times of Francis Bacon and the New Atlantis. There were a circle of people around Queen Elizabeth who were actually very intrigued by the idea of globalism and, and especially in terms of uh, occultism, of which they were participants. They thought in terms of occultic prophecies and the, the magical and mystical destiny of Great Britain to rule the world. Yeah, and you see and, these influences in, in groups such as Tavistock and Fagan yes, Society. And yes, absolutely. And, and so the thing that I'm trying to get people to understand now is to look beyond the idea that, okay, the United States is obviously the most physically powerful country in the world. Obviously, we have the, the, the strongest military, we have the best weapons, we have the money. All of that is true. But what we need to understand is the system in which we're operating, the, the UN system as it's called, the UN NGO system, the World Trade Organization, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, all of these structures are British. They were conceived by the British and they were designed by the British for a very specific purpose, to achieve the long-term British objective of bringing the United States back into the fold, first as an ally of Britain, which we've been a very good ally. We've shed a lot of blood and spilled a lot of treasure, helping England in all its many wars, World War One, World War Two, the Cold of War. Question, of and, questionable and, origin. Well, yes, one must always question wars. There's always a lot of propaganda. But the real issue that I, I want people to understand, because I think we've been propagandized to forget it, is that the original America First movement, now, President Trump has revived this idea of America first, this term, and I was surprised when he brought it back because, you know, in, within uh, the Jewish community, you, you, there's a certain idea that these America firsters back in the 30s and early 40s, that this was an anti-Semitic movement. Because of uh, propaganda uh, at the time. Yes, that, that was one of the propaganda narratives at the time was to say these people are Nazi sympathizers. They don't want to fight the Nazis because they're fascists, they're Nazis, they're anti-Semites. Mm -hmm. Now, there, to some extent it was true. There were people who were actually Nazi sympathizers, there were actual fascist sympathizers, but that, was, that wasn't far from the mainstream in those days. You know, there were people on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, not well, only I mean, that could be a whole other conversation in and of itself, but what is clear to me, just to bring it a little bit more to the macro level. What is clear to me when you look at the first half of the 20th century, you still had an American population that was largely isolationist and they didn't want to get into these wars. And there had to be a lot of subterfuges, a lot of propaganda prior to World War One and prior to World War II. Yes, and, and that's exactly right. 
I guess the point I'm trying to make is that although in our popular culture for a long time, if you spoke of the America Firsters, the pre-World War II America Firsters, a big red flag came out saying Nazis, fascists, anti-Semites. Exactly the same way that today patriots who are trying to safeguard their nation, safeguard their constitution, are being labeled as domestic terrorists, as white supremacists, as neo-Nazis, simply because uh, this is the tool that they're using to squash any, quote, group that doesn't allow them to further their own globalist agenda and takeover of America. Well, yes, that's, that's correct. And I guess what I'm trying to remind people of, slowly but surely, is that the America First movement was much more of an anti-British movement. They recognized and understood that the British Empire was the primary force, really the only force that mattered, that was trying to bring us into World War II. Now, if there were some who were also saying, well, the Jewish bankers and this and that, yes, there were people saying that, but that wasn't the primary thrust. So this is something that's been forgotten in our society. This is, so aside from connecting you with um, Darren, I absolutely also have to connect you with um, Cassandra Fairbanks, you know, who writes for the Gateway Pundit, a brilliant, brilliant writer and investigative reporter as well. And she apparently has the largest collection of documentation and paranophilia. How do you pronounce that word? Uh, Paraphernalia. Paraphernalia, sorry. Paraphernalia. Um, of uh, America First objects and documentation. I didn't know that. Yeah, you have to speak with her. I'll I'll make sure I make both uh, introductions. I'd love to. Great. Now, Richard, we're running a little bit out of time. Can you tell us where people can find your work? Sure. I've been writing these articles at lourockwell.com, and Lou is one of the, the great champions of free speech. He always has been. Now that the internet has become so locked down, so controlled, I I don't know anywhere else I could have published this latest article, How the British Invented George Soros. So that's where my stuff is. I I have a website, richardpoe.com, and I also publish my stuff there. But please visit my articles at lourockwell.com. Give Lou some traffic, because he deserves it. He's a great man. I'll make sure to link to them um, in uh, the description box. But Richard... I mean, every time, as I said in the beginning, every time we talk, we end up, you know, two, three hours in and you're so knowledgeable. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you, not only in terms of your life experience, um, which the audience got a glimpse of uh, today on the call, but on so many different topics, history, religion. We always, I always enjoy speaking with you and you'll have to come back on. It will be my pleasure and honor as always. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. I'll speak to you very soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.